Hey everybody, it's Mark with Delta Frame. Hope you're ringing in the new year, all right? Hey, before we get started, be sure to text us at 380-390-8629. That's 380-390-8629. Today's episode features special guest Chad Benninger of Design Outreach. Uh, Chad has an eight-year degree in industrial design. Uh, in about 10 months to a year ago, he started with Design Outreach, uh, to give you a little synopsis of who they are, they build water pumps for third world countries and people who need water. Guys, right now there's billions of people that do not have access to clean water, which is all something that we in countries or people who are probably listening to this podcast have access to. Uh, so Design Outreach is doing a really good thing. And I wanted to have Chad on to talk about some of the future forward proofing things that they're doing to help people all around the world, not only with giving them access to clean water, but the living water as well. So here it is, Chad Benninger. Hi, right, guys. If you would like to contribute financially or your prayer support to Design Outreach or anything that Chad talks about during the episode, feel free to reach out to them at doutreach.org. That's D-O- U-T-R-E-A-C-H dot org. Take it easy, guys. It's your host, Mark Williams, here with Chad Benninger. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about his life, uh, what he does for a living, and how he got into engineering and how this all correlates to why we're here. Chad, how's it going? It's really good. Nice to meet you. And I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah, man. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, let's let's talk, talk a little bit about yourself. And, you know, why you're here, why you got started in engineering, how you even found out you were good at it. Let's hear it. <laughs> well, first off, a common misconception that most people have with me is that I am an engineer. I'm not actually an engineer. I'm an industrial designer. Mm. So when you uh, think of any kind of product that needs to be made, it's a very long process, right? It doesn't just magically appear in front of you. So if you want to have a microphone or a water bottle, someone has to come up with an idea first. Like, I want something that does xyz and so that they then bring it to an industrial designer and be like hey i have an idea for a product that does this make it like feasible make it a tangible thing something that could be real and that's so that's where i come in and after you know a concept is taken from an idea to a physical maybe a prototype or maybe an even product then is when it's handed over to the engineers who can work on it and tweak it to make sure that it's you know if it needs to be safe it can be safe it can be if it can be mass produced how to mass produce it things like that so i'm involved with that first phase of taking an idea from an idea just in someone's head to um, of a tangible thing that people can work with and do research and study and test yeah. so yeah you're more like an actuator versus the idea person yeah Okay. That takes like a very particular mindset. You yes, know, in, in the conversations we've had before in the friendship we've built so far, it's like, I understand that about you the more you talk about industrial design. Yeah. So how does that all correlate? In what regard? In the regard to how you take somebody's lone singular idea and make a complete skeleton and even flesh on top of the idea. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, you have to have an like a very creative imagination, right? Because you don't know what this person, maybe you do have an idea of what a person's going to come to you with, but um, in the general field of industrial design, you're working for a client who has hired you. And so they're going to come to you with a list, right? We have an idea for something and we wanted to do these five things or these four things. And so it's up to you to take all that and be like, okay, what is feasible given, you know, just re the realities of living in this world and what is beyond that scope? It's like, all right, that's a little bit too far-fetched. Maybe, <laughs> right. maybe it breaks the laws of physics or, you know, something, something super fancy like that. 
So, um, you know, but then from there, it's the idea of, all right, you have to, when, you know, an idea is something in your head and you can't see it. Right. So you have to do your best to take somebody else's idea that they have in their head and make it a physical reality. And obviously, it's not going to be a perfect transition or translation to it. And again, you always have the constraints of our world and what works and what doesn't. And so you, it's, uh, a multi, it's a multiple stage process where you are refining it over and over and over again, starting from a very large pool of ideas. Let's just say you come up with 10 ideas and all of them are, are okay, but it's like which one either looks the best or might function the best or co might cost the less. And then you narrow it down. You take that idea and you refine it as best you can until it is something that is both pleasing to your client, but then also pleasing to the customer who will be either purchasing it or receiving it. So no, I, I get that. That makes perfect sense. Like you're kind of like the distillery for ideas in general. Yes. I think that's one of the reasons why, like, I'm so intrigued by your brain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm an organized, met, like you literally saw it when we were set up, I mean, setting up and everything. You can be creative and still be, I'm super, you know, I'm OCD. I, I, I like yeah. things being organized as well. So they're, they're not, they go hand in hand. Yeah. But um, it's it's mostly the, uh, the, the, the cliche phrase is thinking outside the box, right? Which for me is sometimes hard, but you it's approaching a problem with an open mind first saying there is no wrong solution let's just get ideas because it is from those ideas that you even the most random idea be like you know what we might be actually be able to do something with that and then and then there's the organization to it it's like all right we don't need the other ideas we're taking this one and moving forward with it okay is there any like luck that's involved with that you know what i mean i feel like it would be kind of hard to be like you know <laughs> you got to have kind of like that like je ne sais quoi about an idea to be like you know what this might be the craziest thing on earth but we can make this work i don't know if i would call it luck obviously you know if you do something an infinite number of times it is more than likely going to work so the more ideas you the more ideas you can generate the better odds you are of coming up with something's like hey we might actually be able to use this but you know it's time that can be very time consuming you could spend you know you could spend forever just in the idea phase like oh this might work or this might work or this might work you can at some point you have to be like all right we're done coming up with new ideas let's look at what we have and see if there's anything worth value mm -hmm. no no that um that's interesting to 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 think about because when it's when it comes to me like pushing forward an idea it's like i'm not thinking about the cost or thinking about distilling it to the point of where people know what it is like even if it's simple enough it's like no this idea works and i want to complete it to its complexity so like yeah i really do appreciate you know people like you and then brains like yourselves as well because you literally live it as a lifestyle yeah i mean and there's i mean that's why most organizations are a team right you it's there's value in having different perspectives so you know while someone like myself can be creative and do our best to work within certain guidelines i mean like i said the next step down the road are the engineers well mm -hmm. if you have an engineer on your team as you're making it they can already be giving that input like hey that's not going to work because if you put this much strain on this part of it it's going to break so then that saves you the trouble of, oh, hey, we made this, give it to the engineers, it breaks, and then you have to take it back and fix it or, you know, go back to the drawing board per se. So, yeah, so I mean, there's nothing wrong with not, for, for when you're saying that, like, you don't have a, like, as um, creative of imagination as I do, it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you'd be a valuable member to any team as well. Yeah. 
talk talk about like what being on a team has done for you in your professional career, especially when it comes to industrial design. Yeah, so there are individual freelancers. I'm not one of those people. Hmm. So um, when you're on a team, it is very important to figure out everybody's strengths and weaknesses. Everybody has an area where they're going to excel, and then there's going to be areas where they are going to struggle a bit. And the idea is that you want to assemble a team that mat you know that evens out people's strengths and weaknesses let people be where they work well and then have other people to either cover for them or just to you know mentor or oversee them when they're working in an area that they're not so strong with that's that's what really makes a solid team is everybody working where their skill set is being mindful of the areas that they're not so strong in and then having people to to bolster those areas yeah. so um, I mean, it, it's not just for industrial design, it's for like any, any business, <laughs> any, any, business, any organization and any team, like a sports team. Right. So, yeah. so just like with football, you need, you need big hefty linemen mm -hmm. to provide a screen for the quarterback. Otherwise he's going to get run over. So, so, mm -hmm. you know, so, but you know, when you're big and strong like that, you're not going to be as fast. So that's why you have the running backs to take the ball. So, yeah. So wherever you look in, 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 in the world, you, you need teams that work well together. And so it's finding people's strengths and letting them be in that place. Okay. So, but as far as like where you asked about my yeah. uh, profession, so I'm imagining at some point we'll get a little bit more into that. But uh, mm -hmm. for me specifically, I act as um, a liaison between our research and development and our um, manufacturing teams. Yeah, so we're getting into like the specifics of your position. Yeah, so when it comes to uh, my professional position, it, I'm kind of a liaison between our R&D department and our manufacturing department. So uh, you, like I said, those are the two, those are the two uh, coherent steps in the process of making something. And so sometimes um, in the real world, there can, there can be a disconnect between mm -hmm. those two. Um, the organization that I work for does its best to not have that. So when I get to be like in the middle between both worlds, it helps for a lot smoother communication, which is important because we're, you know, we're working with very expensive, high quality materials that are having an impact on people's lives. So there's a, there's a, there's a, really high expectation Revenue. for like, we got to do this right. It's got to be pretty robust, huh? Yeah. Right. So, um, so I've already explained what industrial designers do as far as coming up with an idea. And that is part of what I do. But then there's the other side of it, which is manufacturing, which is going through and actually making the different pieces because, you know, most things aren't just one solid piece. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of smaller components that you, you assemble together into a larger yeah. um, product. So, that's the other side of what I do. It's, it's kind of like a hybrid. It's a very unique position, and I, I, it, it, um, you know, it goes to both of my skill sets. So I, I really enjoy it. Nice, man. Nice. Um, can you explain the different types of, like, aspects of engineering? Like, I did a little bit of reading on design outreach, but um, it was only a brief overview as far as like the specifics of like the life pump and the auto life pump. Uh, that type of software. Can you explain everything that goes into that to the best of your ability? At least? I can, um, but would you want to first take a step back and kind of get into what design outreach is as an organization as a whole? Yeah. Because I think that. that's a little bit of background information that I think would be needed. Right. Most definitely. Yeah. You know, I just jump so, in. So, um, just just to start at the beginning, I work for a Christian nonprofit uh, design organization called Design Outreach. 
Um, I've been there for, but I have some visual aids here. So what we are primarily involved with is water. And so, you know, I got a water bottle here and as you can see, this is nice and clean and um, well packaged. And so if I were to ask if you wanted to drink this, you'd probably have no question with. Yeah, it looks like. Yeah. So, you know, so this is the kind of water that we're accustomed to in the, in, in, you know, the developed world, right? It, it's, it's, it's cleaned, it's filtered, it's processed. We don't have to worry about things in it that might make us sick. We just drink it. And, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It's in our faucets and our showers and our washing machines and our, and the hoses we use to water yeah, our lawns. So, yeah. So for us, we, especially here in the United States, we, we take water for granted, right? It's everywhere. And we don't really think that much about it. Unfortunately, that's not the case for um, a vast majority of people in the world. So in reality, a lot of people have to deal with something like this, right? So this is, this is what we like to call contaminated water, right? It's got dirt and little pieces of leaves and twigs and sticks in there. And that's the average? Huh? That's like the average of what people deal with? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say the average, but... So, uh, if I were to ask, would you drink this? I mean, no. Yeah, so you, would, you wouldn't drink this, right? This is, this is, this, you wouldn't want this in your body. This has so many germs and who knows what in it that would be harmful to you. But you have to remember, if you don't have water, you don't have anything else. It is the basic foundational building block of life, right? right? So, if you don't have water, you're going to go to whatever lengths to get it. Right. If that means walking 10 miles a day in the sweltering heat, you're going to do it. If that means getting it out of a river or um, a pond, you're going to do it. it. If it means that it looks like this, you're going to do it. If it means that, you know, you share it with your cattle or other wild animals, doesn't matter if they bathe or go to the toilet in it. It's water you need it. So. <laughs> so, yeah, you and I look at this and we're disgusted by it. That's crazy. But um, the very shocking fact is that. Uh, Oh, pretty close. What's the population of the world now? Like approach eight billion, 8 billion approaching yeah. like nine or nine point five at this point. Oh no, we can actually check that, Dylan. Yeah. Um, well, from what I know, roughly okay. roughly two billion population of the world. So, from what I know, roughly two billion people have a problem with accessing water, and then on top of that, another two point two. So four. So four point two overall. Okay. So 2.2, so about 4.2 overall struggle with access to water or don't even have access to water. So this is, this is the reality for a lot of people in the world, especially in developing countries. So most people see that as an opportunity rather than something to trash like we would in America. I don't know if opportunity is the right word for it. Like I said, I'm sure if they, you were to offer them this water, they would take it, but they don't have this. They have this and that's all they have. And so you, you make do with what you have, right? Yeah. So just, just leave those there kind of for the reality of it. So we see that. That is a huge need that, that people have, right? And, you know, again, I've been talking about how blessed we are here in the United States and yeah. in the developed world in general, and I mean, we have, we have amazing technology, right? Like we have a phone, which is like 20 different things. You can, you can talk to somebody on the other side of the planet with this phone. You can a take literal computer, you can take pictures, you can take video, you can look up any type of information that you want, right? right. Just ask it a question. And there's like, 
so many other so we can order food off of it i mean i could go on and on and on about all the uh, wonderful things but you know a lot of the world is being left behind with the with humanity's advancement in technologies and that's kind of you know that's kind of an insult and not but i feel i feel yeah i feel like we need to look back and not just leave close to half of the population in the dust so those numbers are staggering yes it is and so to circle back here that is that is the whole purpose that of why design outreach exists right we recognize that there are a lot of very prevalent needs in the world and there are a lot of people who have been left behind by the advancement of technology and we want to turn back around and come back to them and say, hey, we we have the ability to help you. We are going to help you. And so that's what they've been doing for the past 10 years. And I've been talking about water so much because that's what we're primarily involved in is, is bringing safe, clean, reliable water to people in developing nations. We're primarily uh, based in sub-Saharan Africa, but we hope to expand to other regions of the world as well. So how'd you guys kind of find each other? You know, cause it's a, it's a very proper marriage just from like, you have the look, you have the, the aptitude for it and everything. You, how did you stumble? You're talking about me personally yeah. or yeah. Yeah. So, um, after I graduated college, uh, I, you know, I had my degree. Mm-hmm. I wasn't exactly certain where I was going to end up. Um, industrial design is an extremely broad field, right? So, I mean, if you look around, at everything that humans have, have made, and at some point it had to be designed, right? So I could be making anything from a pencil sharpener to a, to a, to a plane to a space station, right? So the world was before me, essentially. And so it's like, all right, I, I got to figure out what am I passionate about? Where can I help? And, you know, in the back of my mind as a Christian, it was like, if I could, I'd love to end up somewhere where what I'm doing is for a greater cause to help exactly. to help further God's kingdom. Exactly. I knew that wasn't a guaranteed thing because it's like, hey, the first person, the first company that offers me a job, I'm taking. So, <laughs> um, but so uh, the way that I heard about design outreach was actually through my dad. One of the members of our congregation actually uh, volunteered at design outreach. And so he approached my dad and said, hey, there's this great organization called Design Outreach. They're helping to put water pumps out in Africa. You should come down and, and see them and see what they're doing. And so uh, my dad knew that I was involved in both industrial design and manufacturing. And he recognized that both of those things are things that Design Outreach does. So he's like, hey, this might be a possible opportunity, job opportunity for you. Hey, there so, we go. Pause. Yeah. Well, so my dad saw that, that this is an opportunity to bring me along because yeah. he understood that what Design Outreach was doing was both industrial design and manufacturing and research. And he knew that that's what I was looking for. So he's like, hey, you should come along and see about this place. And maybe you this will be somewhere that you'd like to work. So uh, I, I said yes. And uh, we went and toured their facility. And we got to meet one of their co-founders. His name is Greg Bixler. And uh, he gave us the background of how design outreach came to be, which if you want to look it up, it's a it's a pretty amazing story. But um, I'll, I don't have the time for that right now. Mm-hmm. So um, but dad was completely blown away by it. And I was blown away by it as well. And uh, Greg Bixler said, hey, we're um, you know, God has greatly blessed this ministry and we're currently hiring on a lot of new people and we could use somebody like you especially since we're our plan is to move into other areas of need not just water that's one area and we're going to stay with it but there's others that we can help in so we could use somebody like you if i were to offer you a position uh would you accept it 
And um, at the time, I respectfully declined because Design Outreach, like I said before, is a nonprofit organization, right? right? So the people that they're helping aren't paying them for what they're doing. It is it is the generosity of other people all around the world, most, most in the United States, but all over the world, who know what Design Outreach is doing and believe in its mission, and they, and they will financially support it. Correct. So if I wanted to join on with them, I was essentially going to have to do like a missionary work and go to my friends and family and people that I knew and cared about and ask them if they would be willing to give of their financial resources to let me do this job. And that really intimidated me. Um, not only, be, not just because I'm an introvert, but because, you know, these are, I care about these right. people. Like you don't so in my mind is like, I can't go to them and like, hey, can you give me money so I can pay myself? In perpetuity. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that just, to me, that didn't seem right. So that's why I declined. And Greg was very gracious and said, hey, that's fine. Um, if you ever change your mind, come back. So what followed after that was about a year and a half of me uh, just going all throughout central Ohio, trying, applying here, applying there, and trying to find a career elsewhere. And none of them ever panned out. I got, I got pretty close in a few instances, but at the end of the day, they would pick another candidate over me. And so it was, it was very frustrating. But um, each... You know, with each opportunity that came before me, I was always praying, God, if this is if this career, if this potential career is not your will for my life, please close the door. And so, you know, as you can imagine, after a year and a half of doors being closed to my face, right. I had to stop and be like, all right, God's trying to tell me something. It's a little exhausting. What, yeah. what, what, what's going on here? So it took a lot after a lot of prayer, after a lot of just thinking, I realized that there was a door that I had closed that I hadn't even been willing to even try and step through. And that was the position with design outreach. So as much as it scared me, because it was, it involved a lot of things that I've never done before and were very intimidating. It's like, this seems, this seems where God's, it's where, this is where God's pointing me. So I went back and said, Hey, I know it's a year and a half later. Um, do you still want me? And Greg Bixler said, uh, yes, we do. Uh, we are continuing to grow. However, uh, you know, it's been a year and a half. So the position we originally had for you, we gave it to somebody else already. So what I would like you to do is go and meet uh, Rich Arthur, who is our head of manufacturing. Um, and he can explain to you a little bit more about what we'd like you to do. So Design Outreach has two offices, if you will, one in uh, Gehanna, and then the other is out in Sunbury. And that's the, uh, that is the workshop where the pieces are manufactured. Right. So the R&D stuff takes place in the main office. Manufacturing takes place at the, the, the places, the location is called Exact Machine, if I hadn't already said it. So I went out there and met Rich and saw the work that they do. And it was really cool. Um, uh, computer numeric controlled machinery. So CNC machinery um, is what they do there. Big old computer numeric control. So based on what is being programmed? Yes. Okay. So a technician will program a machine, either a mill or a lathe, and it will cut a piece of steel to a specific shape or size. Or, you know, you can give it threads. You can put holes in it. Like, like a laser cut? No, that's a different type of CNC. Okay. Um, this is a little bit more manual, but right. so it's, I mean, but it's really fascinating to, and it, you know, it, it met a, a specific uh, part of my passion. I love, I'm a very hands-on person. I love building things. So that was really appealing to me, but I've, you know, I've never done anything with stainless steel. I've never done anything with these machines and they'll take a leg off if you don't respect them. They're very big and very powerful. So it's like, this is really cool. But I don't know the first thing about them. Someone, yeah, someone, 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 
yeah, someone would have to tell, like teach me how to use this. Yeah. So do they have certifications for it or anything? Or? Um, technically, yes. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so I sat down after that tour with Greg and Rich, and they said, uh, "Well, we've these are the two doors that sit before you, right? We could really use your help here at Exact Machine with our manufacturing because we're working on scaling." Um, but we could also use your creative talents back at the main office as we work to expand into new regions and develop new products for for new for other needs that we'd like to meet. Um, both will work. Where would you like to be? And I gave it some thought and I said, well, I could definitely see myself in both areas, right? I mean, I love building things, but I would need somebody to teach me how to use one of these machines. I would love to be able to use my imagination to help you guys, especially since I spent eight years in college getting my degree for this. I'd like to make use of it. So, And your degree is in what again? Industrial design. Okay, gotcha. Um, but, you know, it's like, I kind of like both, and I know it's not really my place to ask, but is, like, maybe maybe a little bit of both, like the best of both worlds, somewhere Smart in between? Ask. Smart ass. <laughs> um, Maybe that would work. And um, just to my utter amazement, they said, you know what? I think we can make that work. Yes. So, <laughs> yes, I love that. Yeah. So they proceeded to create a position that did not previously exist specifically for me. So at the very beginning of this, you asked if I was an engineer. The answer to that is technically yes, technically no. So my official title is a technician. Right. Um, and I, like I said, I work in both the research and development and the manufacturing sides because God has gifted me with skills in both of them. And by his grace, I get to use both of them for a cause that is greater than myself to help build his kingdom. And I'll get a little bit further into that later. But so, you know, this is where God wanted me. And after working here for 10 months, I can tell you, I mean, it's it's great. But, you know, it's like any other job. There are good days, there are bad days, there are short days, there are long days. But it's it is very fulfilling and this is it's it's a dream job and this is where god wanted me to be and i'm it, it took a while but you know god always has his perfect timing and uh through it all i've i mean i've learned so many lessons because you know i wasn't going to get away from the fact that i had to support raise i had to raise the funds to be able to work for design outreach essentially door knocking yeah in a way yeah so and that wasn't going away so i had to right. i had to face that fear and thankfully, they Design Outreach provided me with some training that uh, just opened my eyes and gave me a new perspective on things. Because, yes, I am asking people for the, to give financially. But if you take a step back, it's like, all right, you have me, and I'm giving of my time and my talents to this organization. And people are giving their financial resources to this organization so that I can do that thing. Right. So... In that sense, you know, I'm not asking people for their money so I can pay myself. I'm asking them to come alongside me as a team. Like yeah. I said earlier, right? You want to assemble a team. Mm -hmm. So these people believe in the cause of design outreach. I believe in the cause of design outreach. We're both giving to that ministry in our own unique ways. So I'm just the messenger at that point, yeah. right? So that takes the pressure off of me. It's not, yes, I want people to believe in me, but it's like, do you believe in what I'm also working towards? Exactly. And that is the that is the whole basis of what Design Outreach is about, right? It's all of these people coming together, whether that's prayer, whether that's volunteer time, whether that's financially, whether that's what I do, like actually physically working, 
that's what makes this this ministry work. It wouldn't work if that if that if it were not so. Exactly. So, um, and it's a super acute mind shift from saying, "Hey, we're partners paying towards something that's going to benefit everybody," versus, "Hey, I'm just paying you." It's way yeah. less transactional that way. Yeah. Did you have any trouble like configuring that like statement for people to understand at first? Um, being the analytical person that I am, not really. Um, nice. You know, I went. There were a lot of people that knew that I was pursuing this long before I came to them to ask for their financial support. So, you know, naturally there were probably twenty or thirty people that were already like, "Yes, I want to help you," because they, you know, I had had a very long, long-standing reputation with them. So. So, you know, I have a very long-standing reputation with some of these people. So they were more than happy to, to help me do what I what God had called me to do. Yeah. So um, it was, I mean, the, the whole thing was a learning experience. God, God has changed me for the better in so many ways ever since, you know, dad asked me to come see their <laughs> design hours, main office over almost three years ago now. So... That's beautiful. It's been it's been quite a journey, but it's I I'm happy to share it with anybody who wants to hear it because it's a great it's a great ministry, and I'm not just saying that because I work there, it it, it truly is. And so I know you have some questions regarding like what exactly no, design outreach does. You're good, man. I I want to commend you first and foremost because you're a great salesperson. Take it somebody who sucks at sales. You're a really good salesperson. Like the amount of like, um kind candor that you had as far as like subtle persistence is really what you know swayed me to continue asking about it and eventually got all of your collaborators to to partner with you as well into it so yeah and you know like yourself on the back for that (laughs) yes but i like i had said before i am i'm an introvert so this wasn't something that came naturally right this this what i'm talking to you about now this is not my first time doing it i've said it many 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 times and so i've been able to refine this as I've given it. So you should have heard me when I first started out. It was, it was bad. So, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's like anything. If, as, if you practice it, you get more confident in it you get more passionate about it. You find the areas where it can be refined and made better and sound more professional. It couldn't have been so, that bad. Like you were, you were stuttering. Like what was happening? Like, um, for, well, for starters, I didn't have as much of an extensive knowledge of what design outreach, where it came from, how it, how it functions, what it's doing, what we're doing going forward. So people would ask some pretty in-depth questions about right. it. And it's like, I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, if, when those are, and when a person asks a question, that's a concern that they have. And remember, you're trying to essentially convince them that this is something that is worth their financial investment. Right. So this if they don't feel confident in that, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to climb on board and be like, all right, well, let's do this. So right. if you aren't able to answer their questions, that's, that's strikes that are slowly building up against you of them saying, I'm sorry, I love what you're doing, but I don't feel, com- you know, confident or comfortable when do in committing toward this. Right. That could just so, be like a sentence or two that could destroy your entire pitch. So. Yeah. So that's why I said there were a lot of people who already knew what I was doing and were for me. Yeah. So even though I messed up in the presentations that that was fine with them, they were, ar- they were already ready to help out, but there were some people that backed out of it because I wasn't fully knowledgeable in the subject yet. Gotcha. Speaking of knowledge, let's dig into a little more of the weeds. Like industrial design, is it formulaic? Like, does that make sense? Yes. And it it can be formulaic. Um, and, but in a way you also have a lot of creative freedom, like, like, like I keep describing. Um, so the first thing you want to do is generate ideas, right? So, um, 
for for those who may not be as familiar with industrial design, there's a little image called the double diamond. And so it goes out and then back in and then out and then back in again. And there are four words, essentially four separate phases, and there are different terms that are used for each of those phases. The first one I, I will refer uh, as discover, right? Like I said earlier, there's no, there's, there are no bad ideas. The idea is to discover what the possibilities are. Come up with as many ideas as you can, no matter how crazy or far-fetched they may be, because that gives you options, right? And then from discover, then you move into design, uh, define, right? So you're taking all of these ideas, seeing which ones are good and which ones probably aren't going to help solve the problem and narrow it down to something that is not necessarily perfect, but feasible, right? Right. So discover, define, um, I always get this one mixed up. Um, obviously I have to pause that here, but no, here, yeah. what's it, what's it called? The double diamond of Look design, double diamond. the double diamond of design of design. So yeah. So discover, define, um, cause the last one is design, but, um, you will never find. it's related to because it's also can be four r's and the third r is is refine Mm -hmm. um wait i discovered to find yeah it would have to be huh thank you develop yep so so the so then so then you go into the the third part which is uh, develop yeah. right so Thank you had a lot of ideas and narrowed it down but then you take this uh maybe a handful of ideas and then you develop them further so you come up with a few more ideas once more um but with the idea of you refining it right? you're taking what you already have and making it better yeah and then um designing it itself as the final uh phase where at the end of it you want to come up with a singular idea or product to move forward with and through those four phases you can you are able to explore, but then also to um, refine your results down to usually one thing that you can present to a client, because that's usually what they're looking for. It's not a, maybe they want you to develop a family of products, but usually it's one thing. Because when you have that one thing, then you have your platform with which to go into your, you know, research and testing and further development in the engineering realm. How much friction goes into that, though? Like, I mean, the double diamond, it seems like a rigorous process. It can be. It, um, it depends on how much freedom your – I'm going to keep calling it a client. Your client wants yeah. wants for you. Um, it, it can be they come to you with an idea, and then you don't see them for six months. And then you come, at, you come down at the end of that timeline, and you present your product to them, and they either say, yeah, we'll take it, or no, start over. Or they might have a representative who comes and joins your team and is there, they're with you every step of the way, critiquing things and giving their insights because they know the background of the company. I feel like that'd be a lot better. It, it, yeah, there's a lot of benefits yeah. to it. They can also be a little bit too nosy because that definitely hurts in the uh, discover phase. Yeah. Because, like I said, the, ma- the, the key to that is there are no bad ideas in discovering Right, it's just broad stroke. Yeah, just generating okay. ideas. So they can definitely, they could be like, mm, I don't know about that, right? Or maybe that wouldn't work. Are they like a producer? Like uh, in TV, film, like they'll be like, hey, don't say that. Or cut, hey, we need to say this this way sometimes. Yes. Or you might have. Yeah, so somebody. there's yeah. pros and cons to everything. So, but there's, like with everything, it's multifaceted. And so the, the degree to which a 
client or a representative of that client would be immersed into your what you're doing is between them and between you. That's something you would agree upon beforehand. True. And I can't say either or is is, is better than the other. So um, with what Design Outreach is doing, though, we don't have a client. We have a group of people that we are servicing. So it's on us to, you know, do the to critique ourselves yeah. and um, work to make what we're making better. Kind of like an upside down pyramid. And then at the point would be the product, right? Yes. OK. Mm -hmm. OK. Uh, let's go into the product a little bit. Uh, can you explain the different aspects of it? I was doing a little research, but yeah. So um, I used the illustration of dirty water previously. And so for people who don't have access, ready access to water, they're going somewhere and getting it from usually a river or a pond, maybe a, a rain pool, right? So these are all things that are on the surface of the earth, right? Yeah. And um, obviously that's the most easily accessible thing. And so, but the problem with that is for a lot of areas of the world, there's a wet and dry season. So part of the year, it's raining a ton and water's a lot more plentiful, but there's part of the year where there's no rain. Monsoon season versus non or? That's, that can be, yeah. Okay. That's an extreme case. Right. So, but in the dry season, everything dries up. And, I'm, and that's not an understatement. Like rivers disappear, lakes disappear, ponds disappear. There is no water to be found. So let me ask, how do we continue to preserve it? Like, how do we do it so well in America versus a third world country? What makes that so different? Um, from a nat from the natural side of things, it's soil quality. Okay. Um, um, but from a developed society perspective, it's the idea that we have water reservoirs that we then natural water reservoirs that we then take water out of and store them in man-made reservoirs so that we have, and you know, we have piping and plumbing. You're making and your own supply. Yes. Right. right. But in developed countries, they don't have that. So let's just say. It's not like they don't have the brains to do it. You know what I mean? So it yeah. comes down to just an allocation of resources. Yes. So. What? Yeah. So think, so think about this, right? So um, three to four months, maybe even longer out of the year, there's no water, right? The human body can only go without water for three days before really bad things start happening. Up and dies. Yeah, so that's obviously you can't do that. Right. So it, it it just creates a tremendous amount of suffering and just horrible horrible things. So this has been a problem for a very long time, right? This is nothing new, and so stemming into the U.S. a little bit too, right? Yeah. Uh, so there were a lot of organizations, both uh, nonprofit, for profit, Christian, non Christian, that are like, hey we can do something about this. And so maybe 20, 30 years ago, there was a really big push to get wells installed because, you know, there are lots of aquifers or areas where there's water located underground. And if we can get to that, then we can provide a secondary water source for people. And so, there, like I said, there was a really big effort. Hundreds of thousands of these pumps were put in across Africa, South America, Central America, South Asia. Um, and it, I mean, it, I don't like to you know, be rude to these people. They had good intentions. Right. Like they were trying to help people. But the problem is, is that these pumps were, one, uh, made to be mass manufactured. So they were made with the cheapest possible materials. And they weren't really made to last. And so these pumps were installed. Everybody was happy. The groups left. And then they proceeded to you know, decay and break down. Right. Most of them didn't last longer than a year. 
And, you know, so then people would have to come out and repair them if that happened at all. Um, and so then you're back kind of to square one, right? I read on the website it was like a few months. Yeah. Like yeah. The uh, half-life of it. Yeah, so six to six to twelve months is the average lifespan before they break down or need some kind of maintenance, and then it can be an additional it can be an additional three to four, possibly even up to a year before that pump would even be fixed. Because of how fast they manufactured it at such a cheap rate, there's so many of them to get to. Yes, and wow. um, remember that's nuts. Well, <laughs> well, on top of that, remember that I said earlier in our conversation that you know these people that we're helping can't afford to pay us. Right. So in the for-profit world, that's bad business, right? right? You're not getting any, yeah. you're not getting any return on your investment. Right. So they all backed out, right? There's no mm -hmm. money to be made. And so if there's no money to be made, what's the point for them? So yeah, they stopped repairing them and just left, pe literally left people high and dry. So, and if that wasn't even worse, uh, even yeah, if that wasn't even bad enough. So not only do water sources on the surface of the earth get affected by the dry season, but aquifers underground also get... An aquifer? Mm -hmm. what is, what's that? So an aquifer is a body of water located underground. Okay. Um, it's not just a bottle of water? No. <laughs> okay, cool. No, no, no. All right, cool, cool. No. So there is a lot of water underground. Um, probably about as much as there is that we can see, like... What is it like 70%-ish, 75% of the Earth's surface is covered in water? There's about the same amount of that underground. When did we discover that? Um, for as long as people have been digging wells. Wow. So maybe not exactly that number, but it's like people understand that there is water buried underground and it can be accessed if you dig deep enough. So, but um, you know, those water sources, those aquifers are fed from water that trickles down through the soil. You know, when it rains, yeah. it, it trickles down. That's where it is stored. It is collected underground in these aquifers. Well, in the dry season, since there's not as much rain, those also recede Windle, yeah. by about 10 to 20 feet. And that's not that's something that people didn't know back then. And so they let's just, let's just use 200 feet as a, as a reference, right? So they'd put a pipe down 200 feet. That's where the aquifer was. So they had water. Great. But then the dry season comes and that recedes 20 feet you now have an you know a pipe sitting in midair. Right. So when you try and use it, you don't get water. So they're just pumping out hot air, essentially. Yes. So there you go. <laughs> and this is happening to millions around the world. Yes. So what, like, we do have things like high governmental forces, like of different countries, like NATO, for example. Why is design outreach seemingly doing more than the combination of the unified forces of the world? <laughs> like... <laughs> Um, it's, it's a, it's a, that's a two pronged answer question. Um, again, first off, like I said, if you're in the for-profit business, mm -hmm. there's no money to be made. So you're literally bleeding your company dry by doing this. Governments are for-profit. <laughs> um, and, um, the second thing is, is that, um, just allocation of resources. Right. You've so, yeah, you have these big, powerful organizations like NATO, but they only have so many resources and they are primarily dedicated to the countries of which they represent. OK. And so. Um, uh, uh, well, it's interesting because we're moving at such an alarming rate, like technologically. Mm -hmm. People are getting left behind. <laughs> yeah, but 
like we shouldn't be allocating all those resources to one spot i'm not talking communism either it's just like there should be some sort of spread like hey this initiative brings ten thousand computers to said country i yeah i and i wholeheartedly agree with that there it is there is a saying a very this well discouraging well not discouraging take it how you will there is a saying that 90 percent of the world's technologies are built slash designed for 10 percent of its population that's a great saying. I'd say I'd say that's kind of true. Look at um all the stuff that's going on with AI right now. Yeah, you know uh, they're making like this uh, AI pin to where you can project a screening of your dashboard and move it on your hand. Nice. So yeah. it's not bad. It's it's a lot of stuff moving so fast. Like they even got robots that can carry water for miles and carry boxes for miles. So it seems like that initiative, once they're robust enough to make it work over long times of like harsh conditions like a car would we should be able to send people water yeah um, <laughs> like, that that's like I, I i keep i will i will keep flip-flopping back and forth on, on slamming on technology and praising technology <laughs> because you know technology is wonderful it's useful i'm on but, the side of good of it like come on yeah it's 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 great it's useful it has its it has its benefits and it does it definitely improves our quality of life but like i said and like i said with that quote it's all being focused on a small group of people and a lot of people are being left in the dust. And so design outreach sees that problem and says, we're not content to sit back and let literally billions of people with a B billions of people suffer when we now have this technology that could radically transform their lives. And so unlike uh, the pre the predecessors, our predecessors, the previous organizations that came before us, we wanted to make a water pump and we wanted to make it right. We didn't care how long it took to develop. We didn't care how, how much it would cost to develop. We wanted it to be quality. And not everybody's willing to do that, unfortunately. So, What is the benefit of, obviously the for-profit benefit, but what is also the benefit of making a worse product? Um, that would... That would fit into that would fit into the uh, mass producing aspect of it. You can get a lot of product out quickly. Got you. Yeah. So over hmm. over many years, um, before I long before I joined, they came up with a pump design, a, a radical pump design. So when I say water pump, most people in developed countries are going to think of your stereotypical farm hand pump, right? That you crank with one hand. Right. Right. Um, and that's the idea behind the common pumps that were used. Uh, but Design Outreach has a much different design on it. It's actually kind of like, I always compare it to riding a bicycle, but with your hands. So it's a pedaling motion. Is that more ergonomic by nature? Or? Um, it, it is, yes. Okay. It produces a lot more um, torque, which is the force of movement. Um, which would make the pump pump more water faster. Yes, that's one of the, that's one of the factors that goes into it. Okay. So... Uh, it took them. It took them several tries to develop it, but it was the combination of a pedal-like motion in the hand pump, along with using uh, materials such as stainless steel and uh, iodized uh, aluminum that fits into the quality part of it. So it's it's very expensive, but at the end of the day, it it, it works and it performs. So we. How to so 
I've, I've listed out a, a good number of problems, right? So the big issue being, all right, we have water, but during the dry season, that water level recedes. So you need to, obviously, they, well, then just put in more pipe, right? Just make the pipe go down just further, deeper, yeah. right? So, well, with a traditional pump, when you crank it, it's called lifting the water table. You're literally lifting that entire column of water up with every crank that you're putting. Displacement? Yeah, water okay. displacement, right? So... Think of your so let's just say there's a there's water 200 feet down. You have to lift water 200 feet up under your own strength. That is very difficult to do. You're fighting gravity the whole way, and all you have is a single person's manpower. Right. Right. So. Oh, I see why. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now it's so, a lot more so the so the so yeah. so yeah, like I said, the simple solution is just make it longer, make the pipe longer. It was like, well, you can do that, but that becomes harder and harder. At some point, you need to transition from manpower to mechanical power, because then that can be, that is so much stronger. So the um, I haven't actually given its name yet. So it is called the life pump, and. It uses a mechanical system of gears to, which is powered, yes, by humans, but that's converted into mechanical energy, and that uh, turns a uh, what is called a progressive cavity pump, which is the combination of a uh, cylinder cylindrical-like stator, and then its corresponding rotor. It's that if you want to look I that think up, think I'm tracking like it. Yeah, it's like I don't have the technical know-how to describe it to people so that you can imagine, like, visualize it in your mind. Please go and look it up. Uh, that will make it so much easier to understand. Definitely. Um, but so it is called a progressive cavity pump because as it turns, it creates a pocket of air, which then, as it, it's a spiral shape, so it pulls the water up by itself and it keeps it there. Um, so there's water sitting in the stator, there's water sitting in the pipe. So as soon as you start turning the handles, water comes out of the spout because with, um, again, traditional pumps, water slow, because it's being, you're pulling against gravity, gravity eventually pulls the water back down into the aquifer. So, you know, every morning it's called priming the pump. Someone have to go out and pump it a bunch of times for like five, 10, 15 minutes before water actually starts coming out again. Life pump doesn't do that. As soon as you start turning those handles, water is going to come out. And, um, because of that mechanical energy, that allows us to add more pipe length onto it so we can get down further into the aquifer. And there's also a little bit of science that goes into it called borehole forensics, which I, you again, have to look up. I don't fully understand that. But you can calculate where the water level of the aquifer is and then calculate how far it's going to recede during the dry season. And so then you can add the appropriate length of pipe to it so that no matter what time of year it is, life pump will work. You can go every single day and know that it is going, that there will be water for you, which is phenomenal. Even if it's, you know, a few miles out from where they live. Oh, there, that's, that's the beautiful thing about, like I said, there's a lot of water underground. So instead of having to walk 10, 15 miles to a pond or a river, most of the time we can find an aquifer very near, if not in, within, like right underneath the community with, or village that they're in. With what technology? Like how is that happening? Um, radar, uh, ground penetrating radar. Would it be a heat signature radar? Or? Um, no, it's like water. Well, I guess you could use the temperature of the water, but it's mostly just singing, uh, sending radar pulses down into the earth, and it would well, bounces it back bounces back off because water. water is different from solid ground. Right, and it's, you're it's able a liquid. to read that through the radio. radio waves. Yes, interesting. Yeah, super fascinating subject. <laughs> I, I, I highly recommend looking it <laughs> that up. That is really cool. Yeah. So 
So, th so there you go, right? I mean, yeah. and people did that with the previous organizations as well. They would they would install a pump right into persons and, and you know in people's communities. So that eliminates the the walk time, yeah. right? So, um, so we're building off of what people have been doing in the past, and so these. So like I like I said, we it was going for quality and safe, clean water. So we wanted it to be reliable, and that's what it does. Every like I said, anytime you turn the handles you're going to get water. It doesn't matter what time of day, what time of the year, there will be water, which is huge. It is made, and like I said, then quality, it's made of stainless steel and ionized aluminum, which are some of the highest quality, longest lasting materials that we currently have, hmm. right? So we talked before about the average lifespan of a pump um, being about six to 12 months. A life pump is currently projected to have a lifespan of 30 years. And that's, um, that the caveat to that that is with uh, preventative maintenance, but uh, we've you know design outreach has only been around for ten years, so we don't fully know that. But we have had the very um, lo and behold, uh, yesterday the thirteenth uh, marks the uh, ten years since the very first life pump was put in. That life pump is still going. Wow, it has not broken down once. So ten years. Of continuous running. Now, has it been main? Has maintenance been performed on it? Yes. Has it been updated with newer versions um, as we've d further refined technologies? Yes. But it has never once broken down to the point that people could not use it. So amazing. That's ten years that the community that it was installed in has had water every single day. I'm, I'm curious, and it's a slight pivot, but why isn't building the rest of technology? that ergonomic and that altruistic you know what i mean obviously there's for-profit organizations but you know, i'm super curious about using like uh geothermal technology and renewable energy technologies in general to make the world a better place mm -hmm. obviously you know you know nikolai tesla what, yes what i do that guy. i do shout out to nikolai tesla but <laughs> um i'm not saying complete free energy but why can't we make it a little bit easier to distribute all of the technology that we have here uh, that might be above my pay grade but um if in in layman's terms it's uh like why are you doing this right so we've already covered for profit they want you know they want profit they want to make money out of whatever it is that they're doing um for more philanthropic groups like what design outreach is doing for more philanthropic uh based groups like design outreach um for us, money isn't the issue, right? I mean, obviously, we have to have the funds to pay for these things and the work that goes into it. Right. But we're not doing it to make lots of money. We're doing it to help people. Right. So um, I forget exactly where I was going with this. but Well, yeah, just stemming into why things aren't built as ergonomic and as, like, community-centric as the life pump. Um, I, okay, so why aren't the other pumps, like, as quality? as that and just more technology like that in general one thing yeah. that came to my mind is like i don't think that many people should be like slipping on icy roads anymore yeah so why not take some sort of geothermal technology pull heat from the ground to you know kind of warm up the highway so we don't have yeah. to deal with that yeah so yeah that i'm definitely gonna say that, that is above my pay grade um <laughs> It, there's there, there's no one single answer to that um all right maybe the the technology is is new and we don't fully understand it maybe it, and because of that it's very expensive so not everybody wants because right now if you're going to invest in it you're losing money 
but people, there have to be people willing to lose money to, to move it forward. Um, there's always the paradigms of this is the way that we've always done it. This is the way we're always going to do it right. for better or for worse. Right. And usually as time goes on, especially with technology, it's for worse. Definitely. <laughs> but people are so set in their ways that. You didn't uh, install seatbelts until, I don't know, however many thousands of people actually died in America from yeah. car crashes. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. We're a little archaic. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so, but design, you know, design outreach isn't willing to sit with that. I was like, we see what the status quo is, but we know we can do better. Yeah. So let's do better. When, <laughs> and let's, let's make it. So we, let's make a pump that isn't going to break down anytime soon. Exactly. We'll always provide water and, uh, you know, gives a great, I mean, it, it, it gives a great, it gives a great opportunity for sharing the gospel with people as well. Um, because that's that's the other side of design outreach. I haven't said that yet, but it's like we recognize that people need water, but there's two kinds of water. There's physical water and there's spiritual Living water. water. Yeah, right. It hits me every people time. Need, people need both, and you know, being humans, we obviously see and recognize the need for physical water, but not everybody knows that they need spiritual water, and so giving people physical water through a life pump and saying, hey this pump is going to give you water every single day of your life and your children and their children's children, that builds a lot of credit. And then that is the door being opened to saying, hey, we'd like you to meet somebody. His name is Jesus. And he can give you an even better type of water yeah. from which you will never be thirsty again. Exactly. And you, can, and you can have an internal relationship with him. And he wants to have an internal relationship with you. And just like in the Bible, you guys provided the need before sharing the gospel with them. Yeah. You have to you have to build that trust, right? right? If if you say we're going to give you this pump and it doesn't work, and then we say, hey, we want to tell you about Jesus, why are they going to listen to us when we already when promised work. one thing and it didn't pan out? So, exactly. so yeah, so that's the that's the accountability that we hold ourselves to. We recognize yeah. that we are doing work to build God's kingdom, and so we have to be good representative of God's kingdom. <laughs> if you if you can understand that, definitely. So. Well, uh... What like what else are you guys like stemming into as far as uh, the other capabilities? Yeah, yeah. So water is what design outreach is primarily known for, and that's what we've worked with for the past ten years. We have um, over two hundred pumps installed in twelve different countries around the world. We estimate about at least two hundred fifty thousand people now have access to clean water because of that, which is wow. great, and it's a great start. But the first word of our name is design, right? We don't want to be known as just a water company. We want to be known as a design company. I want to, I'll say organization or ministry as well. Um, so, and hey, there's water's great, but there's also plenty of other needs out there, especially yeah. yeah, over the broad term of infrastructure in developing countries. So the two that we've recently moved into are uh, sanitation and healthcare, because both of those are also very those needs are also very prevalent in developing nations so like sewer systems are almost non-existent right that's crazy to think about yeah night um you know quality medical care also almost non-existent this is stuff that we fantasize about in movies you know even spider-man they go down to the dirty subway sewer and start fighting you know yeah I mean? yeah so but that's the, i mean that's the reality that a lot of people live with and wow. it, it almost goes hand in hand with clean water um, if you can provide clean water, then you can start working on those other areas because people are going to be healthier. Uh, they're going to be able to, you know, 
they'll be they will be healthier. Their families will be healthier. The crops that they raise will be healthier. The animals that they raise will be healthier. So that in, when you have clean water, that it that improves the quality of life right there. And so that's that's a great building block to move into other areas. So then you know you have to work worry about uh, waste removal, right? Because if you have both physical and liquid wastes lying around which for us and you know in the united states is like almost unfathomable but that's the reality of a lot of people because you know it's like a running joke about india yeah they don't have they don't have a, a toilet or a sewer system to remove waste and put it and take it to a treatment facility it's you go to the restroom in a hole in the ground or wherever you and it's like we're cognizant of it but you saying it just <laughs> like it's literally amplifying it like oh yeah no like people legitimately do not have clean water yeah. sewage systems waste removal it is it is it is eye-opening in a and gut punching so so it's like all right so now we have our we have our foundation we have clean water yeah so now let's work on waste removal and getting people uh, a higher quality of medical care so uh both of these are in there we've we only started these two uh departments this year so the products that we are developing for them are just in their basic prototypes but we're working on um so i'm going to use it it's called a it's called a latrine Right. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that. Think of it as a glor- think of it as a glorified porta potty. Right. Um, much better than a porta potty. I know that if I say a porta potty, most of you are going to be like, very, "That is a that's a very disgusting image that comes to mind." Um, but for someone in a developing country, a porta potty is like, "Oh my goodness!" Right. But um, but a essentially a structure, both above the ground and under the ground, that is a place for waste to be. Um, sanitarily and environmentally contained oh this is nice looking yeah um it's in its fourth generation we'll, now we'll put up a picture and post about it okay keep going yeah so that's that's the first that is the first step right yeah. so have have a way to uh safely contain waste so that it doesn't get into the surrounding soil because then it gets into water sources or you know it's a place for diseases and bugs to germinate and so if you if you have a if you have a if you have a structure that you know contains all of that, that's a huge step. And then um, in the medical area, so you know, um, again comparing to a first world country, we have hospitals and clinics everywhere. But for a, someone in, in a developing country, the nearest hospital or clinic might be like three, four, five hours away. And if you have some kind of serious injury that's now life-threatening because right. you you may not get to the hospital in time. It, it could be something as simple as a bee sting that could take them out. Yeah, you could, you could get a cut. Right. And, you know, for us, throw a band-aid on it, you're good. But for someone else, that, that, that your life now may be in danger because of that. So, I mean, that's a whole other infrastructure story for a whole other day of obviously building more medical facilities. Legit. But... So our idea is like, all right, so then how do we make it, how do we make it so that a person will survive for that trip to get to somewhere where they can receive proper medical attention? And so uh, what you want to do with any kind of wound, right? You want to make sure that it stays clean. You don't want dirt getting in there. You don't want um, like even air, air. Like yeah. So it's, it's a very fancy term. So a negative pressure wound therapy device, the NPWT. And I'll, yes, I can see your face and Negative. I'll explain to that. Who would you want to eat now? So, so what you want to do is essentially uh, create a, va- a pocket, a vacuum pocket over the wound. 
Uh, that will keep air out of it, and then it will also suck all of the debris or and moisture and moisture and things wow. out of out of it, right? And so that will hold the wound um, in limbo, essentially. So and this it, is a modular device. Um, uh, currently, yes. Right. So what we're working on the NPWT. So again, I'll say that slowly. So negative pressure wound therapy. Um, is, is the approach to it, right? So you are using a device, kind of like a bicycle pump. It draws the air out. Um, you will put a patch over the wound and draw the air out of it, which creates a vacuum. And that will keep the wound clean and safe, right? right. And that, allow, that extends the time that that person can, that has before bad things start happening to their body to get them to where they need to be, right? So um, the device itself is quite large, and so it's not very portable, but um, we have two ideas with that. We could either um, scale it down to be a more portable device or have kind of like a hub where it would be and you'd bring people to it and that would allow them to have that vacuum seal put onto their wound and then they could be transported elsewhere. So sort of like a, like a, like a checkpoint, a halfway point, if you would. I like the hub idea because let's say travel does get faster and we do have bullet trains, even if it's a rickety bullet train, we can <laughs> still get somebody to the nearest city to get to the hospital. Yeah. So the hub would be a nice idea. Yeah. So those are the two areas that we're spreading into right now. Nice. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm having been here for 10 months. I'm very excited to, to see where they were when I arrived and then where they are now. It is, uh, several they're both of them are actually getting very close to being like i call yeah. them marketable products we don't sell them to anybody but like things that you could actually pitch yeah actually pitch to people but there's still a lot more of research and testing that needs to be done but it's it, it's just really cool because again there's just so much need yeah. and to be confronted with it face to face is just is very is very sobering so the idea is like all right Let's find, let's, let's, let's help out. Let's meet as many needs as we possibly can. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious as to what you guys are going to do about, you know, the whole art artificial intelligence wave and how like programming and even crypto, some of those aspects are going to get thrown into what design outreach is doing, <laughs> right? Do you guys, are you looking for it? Are you kind of backing away from it? Um, views match up with what's actually happening. Yes. Um, I, for one, cannot like knowledgeably speak into this, yeah. but um, so there's a word, there's a phrase that I've said previously called uh, preventative maintenance. Exactly. Right. So the reason why the life pump has been so successful is that we don't wait till it breaks down to fix it. Right. We have the ability to monitor its performance, and when its performance starts degrading, that's an indicator that something is starting to go wrong, and then we go out and, and fix it, replace something, update something, you know, in real time, right? That's why it's called preventative maintenance. You're doing maintenance before it actually needs it, so it is. that's why a pump can always be running. Right. Um, so... That's uh, that's the that's the digital side of design outreach. We collect we have uh, satellite trackers on each of our pumps that monitor its rotations. So you can see in real time how many rotations each day it's being it's having and how many hours per day it's being used. Wow. So when you know when something starts breaking or you know malfunctioning, that's going to go down. And we're like, okay, 
that needs some work on it, we can contact our teams on the ground and they can go out and, and, and do whatever needs to be done. Dude, that's so cool. Yeah, that's part of delivering a quality product. Yeah. That's, it was necessary. So that's all digital, right? Yeah. So that's a, we have a huge data bank of all of, of pump data. And so um, as far as like in the field itself, I don't see things like AI being all that useful to us, but as far as like data management and then, uh, you know, future projecting, um, cause again, we learn more and more with every year that passes. Maybe yeah. a life pump actually can go for 30 years before it needs any kind of maintenance. We don't, we don't know, but as we gain more and more data and learn about the life cycle of the different components of a pump, something, something like an AI would be able to be like, Hey, this certain part has a average lifespan of 10 years this pump and this pump and this pump have that part and they've been there for nine years you guys might want to start looking at either you know manufacturing those replacement parts or if we already have them on on hand get you know get them out to our uh, suppliers out in the field so that they're ready for when it ever needs maintenance right so kind of just speeding up the process the maintenance process essentially. yeah making it but again Disclaimer: That's all speculative. I don't know if that's well, even if, uh, <laughs> even feasible at this point. <laughs> I mean, there is some actual application towards it. There's these things called uh, GPTs or agents. Mm -hmm. So GPTs aren't necessarily agents, but agents, what they would do is use the GPT, so the large language model, and it would become a modular package for a specific assignment. Mm -hmm. So let's say I needed an agent to actually go out there and check and run a system check or a performance check on the pump you could go and run that or even run it through a piece of software i could see that being easily like, oh, yeah. implemented yeah, into I, design i can see that too yeah um especially with their they and they use the term hallucinate you know so <laughs> the gpts hallucinate right now but as you train a specific model for a specific thing who knows what it's going to be able to do once it actually gets its efficacy uh up you know, even at 80% like success rate with something like that would be incredible. Yeah. So, but they've got all types of robot arms, you know, robot dogs, things that can balance water and actually start carrying water for people if it were to come down to that. Because a lot of the third world countries aren't necessarily the safest either. So yes, there could be a lot of things that AI could possibly help with. And I'm glad you said that because that's yeah. a factor that I didn't talk about. Yeah, like, you know, we live in a broken and fallen world. Not everywhere is safe. So that's another reason why people might not be able to go back in and do maintenance on a pump. Right. It's just too dangerous to right. do so. So, I mean, not even with the uh, latrine hub, like you start breaking that down, it's hard to get people to leave their home or do anything that, you know, even felt relatively normal up until that point. Yeah. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off. Oh, well, well, then what's your next question? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, it was the GPTs and how the agents could help with safety. Yeah. Um, especially, like, let's say a war-touring country, they start blowing up latrines so people don't have access to clean water, start taking out the pumps. Mm -hmm. Maybe GPTs or agents one day could be modular enough to perform those specific tasks where we can keep people safe, evacuate if need be. Yeah. Um, I could just see all that being implemented um, in some sort of degree. Um, but the next, it's not really a question, but more like a statement that I kind of want to pick your brain about. One thing I think that makes us similar is that industrial design, your degree is a lot like making a movie. You know, you have to take a bunch of different aspects and components, make it into a formula, make that formula palatable mm -hmm. and robust enough to use over time. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. And only the best movies can do that. Um, do you see any of those similarities? I mean, how you described it hits it pretty, pretty well on the head there. So it's, it just, yeah, it's, it is design. It's taking an idea and making something of it for, for me, it's something physical, but for a movie, it, well, yes, a movie is technically physical, but it's something that you, right. you experience, you watch and enjoy. Yeah. Right. As opposed to something that you interact with or manipulate. And um, so not entirely certain where you're going with that, but oh, no, I just the, there are definitely some similarities between those two, those two industries. Yeah. Well, I know you're, you're a pretty imaginative guy. You know, you have a nice extensive D and D background that you know I was going to get to. Yeah. Um, and I'd wanted to kind of pick your brain about how like world building in that aspect helps you with design outreach and vice versa. Cause even here you talk, I see a lot of things from industrial design that I'm, going to use like mm-hmm. the double diamond formula to help make more uh, better films, yeah. better videos. So. <laughs> All right. So taking a step back, yes, I am. I am a nerd through and through always have been always. Yes, will tell be. us about you, um, please. <laughs> so creme de la creme. definitely. So yeah, I, you know, I, I play a lot of video games, uh, play a lot of uh, card games, tabletop games, a very, you know, a lot of creative fields, um, role-playing games. And so, yes, one of those things is D and D. And it's almost, you know, it's just, it's just something that I enjoy. It's a muscle that you work. Yeah. It's God gives me ideas and I want to do something with them for design outreach. That's something professional, productive. It helps other people. And then, you know, my own personal things. And so I I don't know exactly if we're trying to diverge here or not, but, um, so they, they kind of do go hand in hand at at their core. right? Right. So you have an idea you're wanting to get from here, from point A to point B, and there's a process that you go to get there. With uh, industrial design, the end th- result is a physical product of some sort that, for our case, helps people in the for-profit world. It'd be to sell to people and make money. Um, when you go over to the more personal and fun side of things, like with D&D, it's, um, you mentioned world building. It's the idea that you are looking at our own world and how it works, and then you are creating a fictitious world to, and, you know, depending on how much you wanted to base it off our own world, like as far as like laws of physics, civilization, things like that. Um, But again, that's just, then you step into the creative realm and you're a lot more free to do what you want. You can, you can make a world where gravity is reversed, right? Obviously, that doesn't work here on our world, but I so, wish it did. That'd but, but so yeah, you can use you can use what we experience here on Earth to influence or not influence um, a world of your complete of your of your of uh, your own design. Yeah, right. So uh, it's just you know it's just another creative outlet. Interesting. One thing I think you're blessed with, man, is an incredible like set of DNA. Like you have <laughs> not only the fortitude to well, not starting before too, but self-awareness to know when to go back to what God's telling you to do. A, be the fortitude to push through an eight-year degree. Like I have more questions about that, but so that is a very long story. Yeah, sadly, that is that's for another, another day. story for another day. I can't wait to hear it. But um, you also have like just incredible like stoutness towards your morals. Like, can you touch on that? Like, touch on your upbringing and touch on like just everything that makes you who you are today as Chad. Yeah. Well, 
Um, I've, I've said it multiple times. I'm a Christian and I am not afraid to say that I was Amen. born and raised in yeah. a, a church. I it's, it's the only life I know, but I'm not saying that in a negative way. Right. Um, it is obviously it's influenced how I think and how I view life. And I rec, you know, I realize that God has put me here for a purpose. It's not just to live life and then die. Um, he wants me to help people, you know, help his fellow image bearers to let, to help others come to know Christ to have that eternal relationship with him to build his kingdom. And he has equipped me specifically for a specific task that he wants me to do. And, um, as far as I'm aware, that is what I am doing with design outreach. He specifically designed me for this position. And so it's, it's looking at the world and yes, you see all of the problems and all the things that you can be discouraged about, but understanding that, God has given all of us the ability to do something about it. So, yeah, we can sit back and say, well, that's a shame. Or you can say, well, that is a shame, but let's, we can fix it. We have the ability to fix it. Let's see if we can fix it. So um, definitely a more proactive outlook. Um, So, yeah, just treating, not willing to leave, let people be left in the dust like our modern society really does. Um, it, not caring about the money, it's caring about the people and helping them, both like I've said, both physically and spiritually. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and Christ permeates everything that I do, and that is, yeah. is who I am. It's giving off the parable of the lost sheep. You know, what I mean, you really have that care for everything you do, and it shows. And, you know, even the little that we've known each other, it's it's been shown, and I appreciate it, man. Um, do you have any, like, words of inspiration for the kiddies out there? Uh, I don't know about words of inspiration, but um, it, it as humans with finite understanding, it is very difficult to comprehend a God who is all-knowing and... Um, for the 30 years that I've been on this earth, it is uh, what, the biggest lesson that God has taught me is that his timing is different from ours. You know, I wanted a career right out of college. I, I mean, to back to backstep, I didn't want to be in college for eight years, but I ended up changing majors four years in and had to do another four wow. to, to get my current degree. So, you know, we want we we live in a culture and a society of we want what we want right now. But. God is moving mountains in front of us and behind us that we don't even know exist so that we can be the best that he intended us for us to be. But he has a time frame and his time frame is better than our time frame, as frustrating as that can be. Um, but uh, he will work thing all things out for our good and his glory. Um, we just have to have that patience. So I've... So many things in my life I've had to wait for. And yes, I most certainly wanted them earlier, but God knew when the right time was to bring those things into my life, onto my path, whether that's people or job opportunities or life experiences or learning opportunities. And so for whoever's listening to this, um, and I'm sure there are a lot of you who are like me, that you're kind of like, I'm sick and tired of sitting around like what is God doing things? I can assure you he is. We may not always see it, but he is. And it takes a great amount of faith and a great amount of patience to let God be God <laughs> because he knows what he's doing. And he, he, 
he has a plan for you and it's going to be amazing. And someday you'll be able to look back and be like, my goodness, I never thought that I, me, I'd be able to do something like this, but God can use each and every one of us for pretty amazing things. Amen. So, Amen. so yeah, it's, this has been awesome. Yeah. I'm glad to be able to share this with you, but also I'd like to, you know, share it with all of you guys as well out there listening in the audience. So you've heard this whole conversation. Um, I hope you've been moved by it and just understand that I know I have. There's a lot of need out there, and there are, but there are people that are working hard to, to do something about that and, meet, and be the good in the world, be the change in the world. And I've told you what Design Outreach does, and that, if that's something that resonates with you, we would love for you to be a partner with us. Um, Design Outreach has a website. It is doutreach.org. There's no www, right? Just doutreach.org. Go to that website. Take as much time as you want looking over it. It will give you a much broader overview of what design outreach is as a ministry than I could ever give. You can learn how we came to be, all the different technologies that we've been involved in, the impact that we've had thus far. And it will just be a very enlightening um, experience for you. And if you so feel inclined, um, you'll up on the main page there on the top right corner will be the donate tab and you can give... Um, either generally just to the ministry as a whole, or you can give to a very specific person like myself. Um, but I will say there is absolutely no pressure to do that. I, I never want people to feel pressured to to give to this organization. It, you you think about it, you pray about it, you do whatever you need to do. And if you are not comfortable in giving, then you, I'm not. I won't be mad, and none of us will be mad about that. We we want you fully on board. And, you know, joining with us in this cause. And so I, I sincerely hope you will. But again, absolutely no pressure and no negative backlash if you don't. So it's, it's, that's how this ministry works is people believing in what we're doing and being willing to, however they can give, help giving. So. Amen. You definitely made a believer out of me. So thank God, <laughs> for you. Thank God man. Always a pleasure to chat. Yeah. Can't wait for the next one. Shine <laughs> on everybody. See ya.